There we are. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we ask that indeed we might only have hearts that desire to please you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, the message of Ash Wednesday is actually very simple. Number one, Adam and Eve's original sin has affected the soul of all men and women, bringing physical and eternal death. Number two, the gift of God through the merit of Jesus Christ alone on the cross has provided eternal life. Number three, there's no justice or righteousness outside of Christ, only self-serving hypocrisy. There's no justice or righteousness outside of Christ, only self-serving hypocrisy. Let's look at that first point on original sin. From the moment that Eve and then Adam took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and decided that they would, quote, be like God, as the serpent promised, the world fell. The temptation was that they might define what is good and what is evil and be master, not like God, but in place of God. And sin entered the world, and human nature and death accompanied it. Later on, God pronounced justly that sentence, which had already happened. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. From Genesis 3.19. This is the bitter fruit and toilsome inheritance resulting from Adam and Eve's mistrust, rebellion, and, dis and disobedience to a loving God who had provided everything for them. St. Paul writes to the Romans, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Post-fall, after that fateful choice, it's objectively true that all human beings made in love by God fell and from the time of conception were conceived to die, distanced from God. The power of the infection of sin rooting its way deep into the human soul and heart is real. And Ash Wednesday is a day of that straight truth, a truth that people don't like to hear, a truth that should make us tremble. It's a day of humbling, but it's also a day of hope. The day is to remind each person whether you're preparing to be a Christian or maybe you've been a Christian for your entire life and are entering your mature years in your relationship with Jesus, that without God's intervention, you're lost, utterly lost. For while God loves his creation and all human beings, his justice simply cannot tolerate sin. It boils down to the fact that God is perfect and holy and due to Adam and Eve's choice, our race, the human race, is not. This is the first point of placing ashes on our foreheads. It's a reminder of sin, 
It's a reminder of physical and spiritual death. They are a mark not of great righteousness, but of failure, of repentance. But God has intervened. In the Old Testament, from the beginning, God sought to restore his creation, and he chose Abraham and the patriarchs to bring about a holy people. Deuteronomy tells us that it was God's choice to make a kingdom of priests out of the people of Israel through the tribes of Jacob. God did not passively allow mankind to become slaves of the devil and condemned to hell permanently. God instituted covenants. He revealed his will in the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses. He instituted the Aaronic priesthood with Moses' brother, which was a system that did what? It required the continual spilling of blood to demonstrate to mankind that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness. And to show that even mankind's domain The creatures of earth themselves share the penalty of sin with Adam and Eve in their own sacrifice. Even with these reminders that God provided for his people in the Old Testament, God's people continued to fail to love. They continued to fail to obey. They continued to fail to please God or treat one another as his fellow image bearers. Instead, they turned and pleased themselves. And God's covenant people cannot even repent and fast properly. In fact, they sin in their fasting even. Look at Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 and 2. It's on the inside of your scripture insert. We did Isaiah, not Joel tonight. Cry aloud, says the prophet, Speaking for the Lord, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. What's the prophet saying, voicing the Lord's commentary here? He's saying that the chosen people of Israel don't fast with right hearts. Why is their fast not acceptable to God? Well, Jesus explains that in chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 21. I invite you again to look at it with me, either in your Bibles or the scripture insert. Matthew 6, 21, where we read what? For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. And their treasure was not fixed on pleasing God. No, not at all, but pleasing themselves and the world that they lived in. Look at Isaiah again. This time, chapter 58, but verse 3 through 5. And starting with the second part of verse 3. Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. 
Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day that is acceptable to the Lord? Well, you might be thinking to yourself, how can one pray and fast to his own pleasure? That doesn't seem to make any sense. But there are several ways, aren't there? In Isaiah, God focuses on his people's mistreatment of each other. You see, God made an eternal covenant with the Hebrews, as I said, to be that kingdom of priests. He spared them from death countless times. He's met them on his holy mountain. He's traveled with them in a desert and made them prosperous as a kingdom. He's defeated their enemies miraculously. God has covenanted with them. Yet, how do they treat each other? Not as fellow heirs covenanted with the Lord God, but as fellow, but as slaves, rather just as the devil treats them, as slaves to be used, to be oppressed, to cheat one another, to misuse power. They let one another go hungry and unclothed. They abandon their social responsibility that God had commanded them to do. And therefore they cease to love what and who he loves. As the old saying goes, their actions speak louder than their words. And the Lord sees their heart. Though they might engage in religious practice, there's nothing in their heart to please God or to love their fellow man. But there's another way that God's people pray, give, and fast wrongly. And that's in Matthew's gospel. Our Lord Jesus points out those people who pray, fast, and do good deeds only so their own actions might be seen which is different than the people in Isaiah. For the people in Isaiah do the religious acts, but don't care about one another. The people in Matthew's gospel do pretend to care about each other, doing all sorts of acts of giving and mercy, and yet it's to please what themselves, their own hearts again. And so Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Such people are prideful self-pleasers. They're different than those that God criticizes in the Old Testament because they do engage in acts that help other people, but for the wrong reason. They don't oppress, but they also don't care whether others thrive. There's a term that's come into vogue lately that I think applies to this really well. It's called virtue signaling. Have you heard the term before? Virtue signaling. It's doing something good, but then putting it all over Facebook and social media and everything or publicizing it so that everybody can see this good thing that you did and laud you and clap for you and, oh, you're a wonderful person. Do you see that's exactly what Jesus forbids? These people don't do acts of goodness to please the Lord. 
but to bring themselves pride and to bring themselves glory. It's interesting that both of these categories, God criticizes both the person who acts religiously but has no heart for the lost. And boy, we see that in our culture too. There might be no concise word that we can call those people other than hypocrites, perhaps. But both the hypocrites and both the virtue signalers have the same problem. Their hearts are all wrong. They long to please men and to aggrandize themselves. Both miss the point. And both are living out of a depraved human nature that is not just or righteous. You cannot please God by pleasing yourself. That's a lie of the flesh. That's an unregenerate nature. You cannot please God by pleasing others either. That's a lie of this world. The problem is, from both sides of this, that nothing here has to do with what's done in secret. And the Lord cares what's done in secret. He cares most about the disposition of the heart. At the beginning of most Holy Communion services, we say what? We pray, from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. That's an admission that in our rotten, unsanctified human nature, we cannot be just or good without the grace of God. So Israel's story issue illustrates that. And if you and I are honest, if we look in the mirror, if we examine our hearts, we illustrate that too, don't we? Without the Holy Spirit, without the grace of God, we cannot be good or righteous or just. As Jesus points out, human beings can twist even things like fasting, even things like doing good, even things like giving to the poor. He can turn them around and make them so that they are things that separate us from God by pride. So what are humans to do? Well, we're to repent and cry for mercy to the only one whose opinion matters, to the only one who has the power to breathe life into dust. This is the second great truth of Ash Wednesday, that eternal life is a gift of God by the merit of Christ's death upon the cross, free to all who would receive it. Humans have been provided a remedy that solves the problem of death by grace and by grace alone. For the ashes that are put on your forehead tonight aren't just a spot, aren't just a circle or a blotch of ash, but they're made in the sign of the Holy Cross. Do you see, the Holy Cross redeems from death. The Holy Cross gives grace and righteousness where there is none. Ash Wednesday and the sign of the ashen cross on our foreheads today is a sign of hope because we couldn't do anything in our own right. It's a sign of repentance. It's a sign of victory. And it all starts 
with that part of Psalm 51, which we'll chant together soon. Have mercy upon me, O God, in your great goodness. Have mercy upon me, O God, in your great goodness. The season of Lent was originally instituted for the preparation of converts, but people coming out of the world who needed to learn this. But the truth is that those of us that have been Christians for many years still need to learn this, don't we? We still need to learn that it starts with repentance, asking for mercy. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return, are the words spoken as the ashes are imposed. But the action that accompanies those words is the sign of the cross. The action is the cross of Christ. For the same God who spoke those words, remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return, breathed physical and spiritual life into Adam the first time. And he breathes spiritual life into you and I the second time when a cross is made upon our forehead after the sacrament of holy baptism and we're sealed as Christ's own forever. Our natural selves are to be put to death that he might live in us and we might give him glory. As Christians, we've repented and received God's gift of life through Jesus, but we continue to need to repent and be cleansed. Yes, it's true that Christ's sacrifice upon the cross was good once and for all time. We say that in our communion service, don't we? And yet, we have to come back again and again, not for his sake, but for our own. In the historic church tradition, this goes on every week. And on the special day, ashes are there to give us a tangible sign of that reality. That God has saved you. That he's cleansed you. That he's won you by the costly sacrifice of his son. So as you walk from the service, if wearing these ashes on your head makes you feel prideful or religious or superior to anyone, wipe them off. Don't leave that door with the ashes on your head because you've utterly missed the point. It's not about your holiness. It's not about the fact that you're superior to somebody else because you're not. It's all because of what God has done for you. We dare not boast, but in Christ alone. And we dare not walk out into this world and directly contravene what our Lord Jesus said in the gospel today. For if we do so, we've received our reward, and there will be no eternal reward. But if these ashes remind you of the penalty that you deserved on the cross, if these ashes remind you to be daily dying to yourself in continued repentance, if they remind you that you're saved by the merit of Christ alone and by him have grace and victory, then wear them and let them be a sign to you that goes beyond this evening. It's a matter of where your heart is. And it's a matter of where your treasure is. As Anglican Christian writer Os Guinness famously said, we live before the audience of one. Before others, I have nothing to gain, nothing to lose 
nothing to prove. I, and I hope you, live before the audience of one, the one who matters, Christ the Lord. Today is all about what he has done. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.